0: We do pray in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. And as you're seated, take out your copy of God's Word. And would you turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians? 1 Thessalonians. Kind of about halfway through the New Testament. And we'll focus on chapter 4 today. It is very good to worship with you. I, I see faces and visitors, um, you know. Faces we have uh, had, had the joy of knowing through years. We have uh, Dominic Aquila's preaching tonight. We're glad to have him with us today. And and Scott Ross serves as a missionary, serves with us over over in Peru. And Carl and Debbie Dorschbach are here, missionaries uh, that we've supported with MTW for so long and good friends. Pastor Doug and his family, and of our congregation, and I mean, I know there's many more, and I I can't even name everyone. I see Larry, Larry's family here, coming from Florida and North Carolina. Welcome. We're glad that you're here. I mean, I I just see many, many faces, and I I, please forgive me not to mention every person I can look out here. I could go on, and then I'd be afraid I'd miss someone. But especially our missionaries and those who serve well, we're just grateful for you and grateful for you being here. Um, First Thessalonians four. Chapter, first uh, and four, starting in verse thirteen, we we'll see the reasons that we have for hope today. Listen to the word of God. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no help, hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to your perfect word, we pray, God, you would strengthen us, encourage uh, us in it, strengthen our convictions, strengthen our hopes, uplift our knowledge of your word and your calling upon our lives. And Father, even as we hear your word and as we consider it for our lives, would your spirit do a work in helping us apply it to, to where we are and what we have before us God, help us strengthen your people for what we face. We pray this even now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, at some point, every one of us is going to experience suffering and is going to experience some sort of loss. Uh, You probably have already experienced some point of loss in your life. Uh, And when times get hard, it is easy to be discouraged, it's easy to uh, feel overwhelmed. Um, it's easy to see the problems and the despair and the wonder of how uh, we will possibly keep moving through those difficulties. You know, These are all pictures that we have of grief, of, of responding to a loss with a sense of wonder um, as we look towards the future. And sometimes on top of the experience of grief, then we feel bad that we feel bad. And we, can, we wonder why we just sometimes can't even shake it. Uh, in a very real way, you know, grief upon grief makes our suffering uh, worse. And today what we want to do, in looking at 1 Corinthians 13, is look at the hope that we find in Jesus Christ. And that's because through faith in Jesus Christ, uh, we find a perspective of death, and we find a perspective of life, and, and things that we just don't find in the world around us. We don't see it in the sentimental thoughts, we don't find it in the platitudes of the people around us. And we also certainly don't find it within ourselves, right? We have to look outside of ourselves. We look to God's word uh, for that word uh, to instruct and guide us in our thinking and and in our heart. As we look towards our passage today, we see what our hope is grounded in. It is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that because he was raised from the dead, we have a great reason to hope even in the most difficult of our situations. We have a reason to hope, because Jesus gives us a path and a path to life. He gives us a path to hope. Now, what reasons do we have to be hopeful in times of grief? That's what we're gonna look at uh, today. Now this short letter of 1st Thessalonians, it's written to give us some help. The Thessalonians, they were dealing with their own uh, sense of grief. And then they had had loved ones, and they'd had congregation members die. Now, their grief was made worse by uh, some bad theology and some misplaced expectations. They had seen family, friends, fellow worshipers. uh, They had recently uh, passed away. And there was this natural grief that they would have experienced anyway. But the grief was worse because they believed that their loved ones had somehow missed out on salvation. That's because one of the incorrect beliefs that the church had at the time, that he's addressing here in this letter, is that Jesus was going to come back immediately. He was going to come back before any believers died, and he was going to bring them to heaven. And so when their friends had died, before Jesus had come back, they were afraid that their friends had died too early, that they'd met, missed their chance for life. So not only did they lose their friends, but they had also felt like they'd lost their friends for eternity. So in this letter, and then in Second Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul, uh, he corrects some false views of the return of Christ, and especially in the passage we're looking at today, especially in terms of death. It's because bad theology has consequences, it actually affects the way that we experience life, and it affects us emotionally, mentally, as we consider our own life. The people, the Thessalonians are upset with the recent deaths. They're more concerned with the souls of their loved ones. There's a need of hope in grief, and that's why we see this in verse thirteen. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, verse thirteen, he talks about these believers who have gone to sleep. It's a, it's a soft way of, of talking about those who died in the Lord. In fact, when the Bible talks about believers who have died, he often uses that sense of sleep, point to the temporary nature of death, but we'll get more into that in the future. Uh, but, you know, he's talking about believers who have died. And the problem that the church was facing here is they hadn't been taught about the nature of death, about Jesus' return, or about eternal life, and they'd taken on the false beliefs. They were uninformed. That's why the Apostle Paul says in the beginning, I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. He did not want them to be unacquainted with critical truths that they needed. This isn't the only time that he uses this phrase. He uses it in uh, Romans 1.13. He uses it in Romans 11.25. He uses it in 1 Corinthians 10.1. He uses it in 1 Corinthians 12.1. And throughout his whole ministry, the apostle Paul, as he's writing letters to the churches to instruct them in their faith, he wants to make sure that they understand. He wants to make sure that they're not uninformed because falsehood has consequences and is truth that ultimately sets us free. It's really hard to be uninformed. I was, uh, as I was working on this sermon, I thought, you know, it reminded me of these videos you see. Sometimes you see them on YouTube or whatever about uh, on-the-street videos uh, of people. They, they ask a question. Um, like the question I watched that happened to come across was, name me all of the Avengers that you can. You know, the Avengers from the movies, Avengers from the comic books. And you'd have this gal, and she would peel off Six Avengers. And then you have this guy, and he'd like go into eight of the Avengers. And then the next question is, tell me some presidents of the United States. And then the first person got two, and the second guy got zero. He had wrong answer, in even the one that, that he had. One of the interviewers uh, looked at, was interviewing somebody on the street, and said, do you see that flag over there? It was the United States flag. And they said, can you tell me how many stars are on that flag? And the gal looks at him and she says, you know, it is just flapping too fast. I can't count them that quickly. So, you know, it, 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 these, these are pretty sad things, but um, it, it is hard to be uninformed. There's lots of things that we're uninformed about, and it's, it's hard to be uninformed. And in this case, this uh, being uninformed is especially awful, you know, because they're concerned for their loved one's eternal destiny. What a horrible feeling that they would be lost forever. And it left them open to all kinds of despair. It left them open to manipulation and superstition. That, you know, there's been hucksters and there's been false prophets throughout all history who found it easy to manipulate people in the grief of, of their lost relatives. I mean, from pagans and their seances and bringing back the dead or or the Protestant Reformation just spurring on um, out of this controversy over indulgences where their thought was if they pay a little bit of money, they'll be able to spring their loved ones out of purgatory and to release them free. I mean, we care about those who've who've passed and we want to have some hope for them because it's also hope for ourselves. You know, when we're misinformed, we're uninformed, we act just like the world, Probably the problem with these on-the-street interviews. We act just like the world. We see that in the Apostle Paul's words in verse 13, when he says he wants them, he doesn't want them to grieve like the rest of men. Now we shouldn't take the wrong point here. He is not saying that it is wrong to grieve. There's nothing inherently sinful about grief. Grief is a universal human experience. It's good to grieve. I mean, we can look at our Lord Jesus Christ, and we see his grief. Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, 3, it says this about him, that Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faith, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. He was acquainted with grief. We can know his prayers over Jerusalem as he knew of the impending destruction of Jerusalem which would take place in 70 AD. We can just look back to his um, experience with Lazarus in the tr- in, in, uh, after the loss of his good friend Lazarus coming upon Martha and Mary in John chapter 11 and seeing their grief and then his own going before the grave where his good friend Lazarus had died and we read that verse that Jesus wept. He loved his friend, and he knew the evil consequences of death and separation, the suffering of loved ones, and he empathized with them in their sorrow. He's not this distant, unfeeling deity, but he comes near to the brokenhearted. When we experience grief, Jesus says, me too, I experience grief. Grief Grieving reminds us of the world that we live in is not the same as the one God created to be. The world in which God created was without pain, without death, without suffering. And that's what all our hopes and longings are just attuned to. They're attuned to how God created the world, the way they're supposed to be. And in death, we see this interruption. Death shuts down our dreams for the future. It breaks down our joyful habits. It tears apart relationships. It breaks these unions. It needs people without the support that they need. Part of grief is just remembering the good things that God has given to us. Grief is gratitude as it looks to God as the giver of every good gift. Grief is worship as we bring our grief and our sadness to God and we look to him to be our comforter in the word of God and through the gospel. So God does not want us to grieve like the rest of men. Our faith changes the way that we grieve. So verse 13 is, is showing us, how is it that most people think about death? I dare say, first of all, that most people just don't think about it at all. They just really try to put it out of their mind and try not to consider it at all. We tend to avoid death, put ideas of death far from us, and then oftentimes when death hits, it's, it's all the harder because you know, we've been just avoiding it, not considering it. And so most people, I just don't think about death at all and considering you know that is the trajectory which we all are on, and all of our loved ones it 's one that, we, um, that every person ought to consider for their life but without faith in Christ, even some beliefs about death don 't give much hope that there 's this uh, letter which was uncovered from this first century is around the same time that the letter to the Thessalonians would have been written, and it was a, a letter um, uh, that was written from a non-Christian woman named Irene to comfort some friends and who had lost some who, who lost some loved ones. And there's two sentences in the letter that say this: "Against such things like death, against such things, one can do nothing. Therefore, comfort one another." I mean, that's really it. And you know, to to her, there really is no hope. You know, all that they can do is comfort one another. But there's no statement of hope, which is nestled in there. And that's where the Bible has much more to say. We don't grieve as the rest of men. This letter is written from the Apostle Paul saying to the Thessalonians, I don't want you to be hopeless like this. The world does not provide help. We can ponder something written by Dr. Alex Rosenberg. who's a professor at Duke University. He wrote a book called The Atheist's Guide to Reality. And in this book, he talks about things like there's no such thing as human personality, that the human self is an illusion, and he calls human beings simply as meat robots, or just robots that happen to have meat on them. You know, there's this purely materialistic universe. We're just purely physical. We don't really have a mind, a soul, no personality. It's just some electrical impulses in the brain. You know, how does that affect his thinking about death? He asserts that death is simply an end of that material part of it, right? That we simply cease to have conscious thoughts, but the world goes on unchanged. He says this, science teaches us that when we die, everything pretty much goes on the same as before, except for you. You cease to exist. Can you think how that view, really a hopeless view, would affect the way that you act and believe? Either there's despair when it comes to death or Maybe hedonistic despair, right? You only live once, so live life to the fullest. When I mean, your life ends, it ends. So don't worry about the future after that. Just live for the here and the now. Live for what you can get now. Eat, drink, and be merry. for tomorrow we die. How common is this? Even if people may not say it, many people live this way. There's a kind of despair that's there. And if we enter that, is there any surprise that many would live selfish lives? Absorbed in sex and money and power when this life is all they have to open, when there's no sense of a judgment to come or when there is no hope for reward in heaven. But that's where the Lord would not have us to think about death like that. He doesn't want us to be uninformed. If the Bible's message is true and his people will live forever in heaven, then we have hope. And that's why we see a difference if we go to a Christian funeral and a non-Christian funeral. For one, I mean, non-Christian, more and more, as time goes on, we see less and less funerals. Any, uh, you know, growing sense of a last last commemoration of the person or looking for hope. What hope or consolation is there in death? Because even if there is a service without God, what hope is there if a person is just gone? All it does is comfort us in their passing, maybe finding some sentimental hope after it. But if the gospel's true, if there's a heaven, if Jesus forgives sin, we enter into that, there is a basis for hope. So we're not gonna find hope in the hostility of the world towards God, towards the gospel, but that does not describe the Christian life. We have a hope. That's where the passage goes. Now how do we know that there is hope beyond death? Is it just wishful thinking? You know, that's where verse 14 brings us down to. Verse 14, Read this. For since we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The basis of our hope is Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' return. We know life goes on past uh, this, this, this life of ours because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, you just consider what happened on that first day. Easter. On that Good Friday, Jesus was crucified on a cross. He was dead. He was really dead. Examined dead. He was wrapped in heavy burial cloths. He was, he was um, coated with some spices. He was placed in a tomb. And his body remained there three days with a, huge, with a huge rock covering the front of that tomb. And then three days later, he emerged from that tomb fully alive. Over a 40-day period, he visited his disciples. It said that he visited over 500 people at the same time. And so this is a matter of an historical record. You know, it's not an allegory. It's not a feel-good story. It's not a myth. I mean, the Bible is presenting this as an historical event. And as Jesus continues to live after he dies, we know that death is not the end of existence for us. You know, And that is, that is a bedrock conviction, a bedrock belief. And you have to remember that when our faith is shaken. We, we know this happened. This is one way we know the Christian faith is true. It's grounded in this historical event. God has testified to the truth of the Christian faith in the resurrection of Jesus. Amen. So verse 14 goes on then to show that then how it applies to our lives. He says, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So the great hope for the Christian is that just as Jesus lives, that we will live. We're going to sing this as our closing hymn. Jesus lives and so shall I. Jesus lives and so shall I. Death, your sting, is gone forever. He who deigned for me to die lives the bands of death to sever. Jesus died for me. A testimony to what Jesus did in his death. Severing that connection between death and judgment. Death becomes a passageway. So if you're afraid to die, you know this, is that God has made a way so that you can live forever in heaven. But you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what takes away the final sting of death. That is how death becomes a transition to new life. A transition unstained by sin and evil but one that is transformed by God. And it's a transition. It might be a scary transition, there's no doubt. I remember years ago reading an allegory of a, of a little baby inside the womb. And the picture was this little child in the womb, all nestled and snug, just fed every day, and warm and comfortable, and hearing the wonderful news, you know, the wonderful voice of, of his mother there in the womb, and then all of a sudden getting some urge. And somebody getting a message that he's got to leave the womb where he is. And he says, Oh, you know, but I'm so comfortable. I'm so well fed. I'm so well taken care of here. I don't want to go into into that outer world. I don't want to go. It's like a death. But what is it? It's a transition to a new life with new joys, new experiences. But isn't that what death becomes to a believer? There's a new life, it's a transition into glory. Pastor Doug, in the last few months that he was with us, would often, um, you know, as he was uh, thinking about death and discussing it with us, he would often use the illustration of, um, of, of a child who's maybe been on a car trip with his parents. And he's been in this car trip, and it's been a long trip, and he gets tired, and he, and, and, and he falls asleep in the car. And then when he wakes up the next morning, he realizes, I'm in my bed. I don't know how I got in my bed. Well, how did he get there? You know what? His father took him out of the car. He brought him up to his bed, and he laid him gently down into his upstairs bed. It's that transition into glory where our Heavenly Father takes us from this life into the next. We look at verse 14 again. And we see something else that says that God will bring with him. God will bring with him. Bring. That's an important word. That God has promised he will bring Jesus back to our world. Jesus will rule and reign over a new heaven and a new earth. And the promise is this, that he'll bring every one of his followers together with him. I mean, this is talking about the second coming of Jesus into our world. And there's a promise that we will be with him at that time. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Ah, so Jesus, he, he comes in glory. This is not an unnoticed event. There is a, a cry of a command, the voice of the archangel. There is a sound of the trumpet of God, a, a glorious announcement that the world will be aware of. And all the dead brought to Jesus. Not some sort of a secret rapture, but some sort of a glorious procession that believers are coming uh, with Jesus Christ in the declaration that He is King. There is a promise that we see in there that the dead in Christ are the first to rise. That's the promise of the resurrection. We need to remember that. You know, in the Bible, that the, the promise or ultimate resting place, or ultimate place where we end up, is not in some disembodied heaven. Is that where we're disembodied souls hovering around on clouds, strumming harps? We call that maybe the immediate state. Although I don't know about the clouds and the harps, but we call that the immediate, it, the intermediate state. It's a temporary thing. That's the time after death. But before the resurrection. And you know we know that we get to be with God then. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was crucified with two thieves, and one of the thieves said, "Remember me. He talked to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom." And what did Jesus say? He said, "Today you will be with me in paradise. Today, right after his passing, that thief and the cross was brought in the presence of God. Only because of the sacrificial death of Jesus right next to him. He did not need to wait. It would happen right away. And that's why the Bible says that we're uh, absent from the body. We're present with the Lord. 1 Corinthians, or 2 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says, yes, we are of good courage. We'd rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. Matthew 5, 8 says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So the intermediate state after death is great, but we have an even greater hope than that. The final place where we shall dwell, the final heaven, the ultimate glory is seen in the resurrection. We were created to be body and soul together. The resurrection brings us back to that place. The resurrection brings us back after death in a glorified body immune to decay and destruction that will live forever. And so, so many of the things we enjoy in this life we present the new heaven and new earth, just unaffected by sin. Do you like ice cream? I'm hopeful we'll have the bodily joy of ice cream, <laughs> of pets, of holding hands, beaches, conversations, the warmth of a fire. If we look at the end of verse 16, though, we see this. It's the dead in Christ who join him first. It's important to notice the terminology it uses here. That they are dead in Christ. Dead in Christ. That's because even when we die, as we have faith in Jesus, our bodies are still united to Christ. Death does not sever any part of us from Jesus. We are still in him. We have bodily hope. And that's important because there is another resurrection, but there is a resurrection for those without Christ. A bodily resurrection to judgment. And it's a terrible thing to imagine because it means physical judgment in bodily form. So if you'd want to know the joys of eternal life with God in the new heaven the earth, new earth, you must be in Christ, trusting in him, trusting in him for forgiveness, trusting him as Lord, trusting in him for eternal life. And if you look at verse 15, it talks about those who died in Christ will rise first. First fifteen says, "For this we declare to you by word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep." So the Thessalonians believers they have it backward. They were worried their friends had missed out on Jesus uh, because they had died. <coughs> but the Apostle Paul shows that that in fact, if Jesus comes back right now, those who've died are going to be at the front of the line. So we see what happens though dies in the Lord, but what about those who remain alive when Jesus comes back? That's verse 17, They're second. Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And so here we have Jesus leaving this big procession like a parade. He's coming back as a, as a conquering king. And the first to join him are those who've died in Christ and the next are those who are still alive. I mean, this is gonna be the biggest, the grandest entrance of a king to his throne ever in the history of the world. And then we have this wonderful promise, so we will always be with the Lord. That's eternal life with God. No fear of separation, no fear of hell, no fear of the second death, Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15 say, Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. But we don't have to fear that as we've trusted in Christ. If our names are written in that book of life, Revelation 2.11 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Have you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If not, believe in him. Receive him as Savior. Ask him to forgive your sins. Ask him for the grace to follow him. And if you have received Christ, then your name is written in that book of life. You have that promise, you will always be with the Lord. I mean, that's great news. Always being with Jesus, always being with our Redeemer and Savior. The joy of eternal life is in Christ in his rule and reign over the new heaven and the new earth. And so this is something that we encourage others with. We encourage others in this truth. That's verse 18. Verse 18 tells us, therefore, encourage one another with these words. We need one another's encouragement. Especially when we face suffering and loss. You notice that the encouragement that we give is based on truth. It's based on good theology. In times of of suffering and loss, we hear bad advice, we hear discouraging words, things that are not in the scripture. Bad theology at times puts undue burdens on people, and other times it gives false assurances of good, gives sentimental words that don't help. We can think of Job's friends. When he lost his possessions, his children, his health, his friends said it must have happened because he sinned. That's the only reason that would have happened, right? Well, they were wrong, and they had admitted by the end. Suffering is hard enough, but it's worse when we use bad theology to comfort others. But we need to be there in the, in the true hope of the gospel. It happens as we write cards, we pray, we bring meals, we spend time with one another as we gather together for worship, as we sing a song, as we confess our faith. It, it happens to remind people what Jesus has done. That's how we encourage one another. As we do it together, we bring encouragement, we, we live our faith out. We talk about our hope in Christ. There was a time when Donald Gray Barnhouse wanted to encourage his children after the passing of their mother and the passing of his wife. Barnhouse was the pastor of the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He'd been there for 33 years. he just lost his wife to cancer. He was driving home after the funeral. His children were in the back seat and there was grief in the car. He was struggling to know what to tell them for comfort. As they drove in silence, he was trying to figure out what to say and a large moving truck passed by their car and it cast its shadow over them with the midday sun. Barnhouse, he was a master of illustrations. He instantly knew how to encourage his children. He said, children, do you see that truck that just passed us by? Would you rather be run over by the truck or by its shadow? And the children say, well, of course, Dad, we'd much rather be run over by the shadow. It can't hurt us at all. Barnhouse answered them, do you know that 2,000 years ago, the truck of death ran over the Lord Jesus in order that only the shadow might run over us? And that's how we encourage others in the Lord, pointing back to what Jesus did in overcoming death and giving us life. Death has no more power over us because we know that we live forever. Death is a shadow that runs over, but there's a greater life and work with us, one that keeps us forever. So we see that we, need, we use good theology for comfort. What Jesus says, he brings words of comfort. John 14, what, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. If we want people to find hope, we point them to Jesus. He is the one who's brought comfort. This last book, I, I, or this last week, I purchased a little children's book. And it, it talks about death in a, in a very helpful way. It's written by a woman, Ann Riley. She had some friends who were facing the death of their children. Uh, there was a disease they have called Batten's disease. Uh, it's a neurological disease. It takes children's lives, usually around eight, ten years old. And so there's this book that is called The Voyage of the Star Kingdom. And, and the book tells the story of these, these girls who are passing from death to life. And, and it's a fictional story. It's a, uh, it's a way to communicate these things to young minds. But in this story, they're, they're passing from their house into another realm, um, which is run by someone called the Star King, you know, representative of the Lord. And the part that moved me as I was reading this was when the Lord's messengers, in this book they're little angelfish, but they come to carry the two little girls away into heaven. Right? They're together as a whole family. And these angelfish, as messengers come, and there's a time to separate. And the parents, and their sister, they say, why aren't we all going right now? The angel fish gives this important reminder that the Star King has his own ways, that his ways are right and good, That his timing is not the same as our timing. The star king calls everyone their own time. And then she describes the girl's passing into death. Says the boat drew closer to a shadow. As they moved towards this kingdom, there was this wall of darkness, which was just there. Veil of darkness just in front of them seemed just impenetrable. How would they go through that? The other angelfish, they zipped through this darkness. They are back and forth, and they were making holes in this dark veil that, that was there. And the youngest daughter says, will we fly through it too? I mean, it looks like this solid wall. How can I make it through that? They can't see past it. It looks dangerous. Yes, said the angelfish, the shadow can seem frightening, but you must remember that you are children of the Star King. You are strong enough to face the shadow because he has given you his strength. The girls felt stronger than before. We must call out the king's name as we pass through, said the angel fish. It will weaken the shadow even more. As the boat passed the shadow, of the angel fish flipped her tail wildly, and the girls shouted with her I come in the name of the Star King. The prince of darkness has no power over me. With that, they pierced the dark veil of death and continued on their journey to the home of the Star King. What a reminder of the one who's defeated sin and he's made death a shadow for us. As we grieve through life, through whatever we face, we know that there is hope. As death has no power over Jesus Christ, the one who's conquered sin and death. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to carry the weight of sin and death on our behalf. When we are in Christ, we have Christ's victory. He is the one who has rent the veil, He is the one who has pierced through it. He is the one who has broken through that darkness, the darkness of the death, that we may have the hope of being with you in glory. Thank you for that good news. Thank you for Christ and direct our hope and our attention towards him. And as we think through loved ones that we know who are without hope, help us to think how we can share Jesus with them as we see those who are gr- suffering and grieving that we would speak the hope of the gospel. We come in the name of the Star King. The power of darkness has no power over us. We come in the name of Christ. What is sin and death a power over those who believe in him? That's our message. Help us encourage one another in this. Help us help one another look to Christ in worship and in song and in prayer. Lead us and guide us as we go through this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand again.